God is absolutely committed to giving us his promises. He gave us a book of promises. When you read the history of the Bible and you see how many different emperors and kings and nations have sought to destroy the Bible. I mean, for a time, it was um, an illegal book um, in Russia, in China, in these different countries. And you see that God has preserved the Bible, that you might have the promises. God is committed to giving you his promises, but he is also committed to fulfilling his promises, to bringing his word to pass in your life. Not only that, he's committed to bringing you into these promises settling you down in his promises that you might testify to your generation, the next generation, about the veracity of God's promises. When it comes to the promises of God, we all have this tendency to think that God has maybe given up on us. Like, well, I was going to do that, but you know, they kept just lingering. There's these things in their lives and I'm just going to hold back a little bit. My oldest daughter had at one point decided to walk away from the Lord. And I remember talking to her, trying to persuade her to come, in, come back to the Lord. And she said to me at the time, Mom, I know God is real, but I love the world more than I love God. And I remember just being so rocked by that. I didn't even know what to say in response. But I went to prayer and there was a time when she came back to Jesus, and now she is walking with the Lord um, in an amazing capacity and discipling her own sons in the Lord. But at the time, oh yeah, cheer, Kristen, woo, woo. Um, and she'll kill me for that. But she's, I remember that time that she came back to the Lord. And when she came back to the Lord, she was so broken and so fragile. And the enemy was just lying to her, telling her that the promises were no more, that she was going to have to work her way up. Much like the prodigal who came back to his father's house in Luke 15, saying, if I can just be a servant in my father's house, that's all I expect of God, is just to be a servant. And she came back thinking that God wanted to make her a slave, only to realize that he wanted to make her a princess and the daughter of a king. But so many of us are like this. We think of God, we think we've jeopardized all the promises, and we feel like we're coming back to a master rather than to a father who loves us. And I remember as God began to pour out his blessings on Kristen, she got scared. She said, wait a second, why is he doing this? Why is he blessing me? You know, Our family has the gift of suspicion that came from my mother and was passed down. <laughs> but why is he blessing us like this? What's going on that he's blessing me? And I said, Kristen, he was collecting all those blessings for you, even when you were far away. And now that you're in the place, he can just open up his hands and pour them out on you. You see, God collects his promises. I was reading in Isaiah this morning that God waits, Isaiah 30, that he might be gracious unto us. He's waiting for us to come into the place that he can pour out his promises on us. 
But we tend to think that God has given up on us and said, well, um, I'll give these promises here (laughs) instead of here. We often think that God has changed his mind toward us about giving us the promises or that we're excluded because of our past failures or our unbelief when it comes to the promises or our, our little faith when it comes to God doing something. Don't you love the fact that God works in spite of us and that God's promises are not based on our faith, but on his zeal and passion to fulfill his own word? When trials come, often because of our mistakes, we try to handle them on our own. Oh, I don't deserve God's power. I don't deserve his help in this. I got myself into this. Now I need to get myself out of it. But Joshua 10 teaches us something absolutely contrary to that idea and concept. Joshua 10 proves to us God's unfaltering commitment and zeal to give us and settle us into his promises. We see his great grace to use even our failures and our mistakes to advance the promises in our lives. God actually fights for us that we might have all his promises. We often forget the warrior side of God. God has waged war against our enemies. God waged war against sin that he might bring us into his promises. He waged war against death and against condemnation and against Satan, that he might give us the promises, that we may lay claim to his promises, and that we might move in and live in his promises. At one point, we were excluded from all of the promises of God. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2. Sin excluded us. Our failures excluded us. Our choices, our wrong choices excluded us. Our wrong alliances excluded us from the promises of God. Then death ended opportunities for God's promise, and we had the sentence of death hanging over us, and the wages of our sin, the payment for our sin, was death. And by fear of death, Satan kept us captive in his prison. Condemnation was our just recompense for our sin and failure. We had no hope, no way to stop the voice of condemnation that was against us. We were the inheritors of our father's sin, Adam, according to Romans 5.16. And then we had Satan himself deceiving us into sin, seeking to sabotage us from the promises of God, and constantly doing all he could to keep us from these same promises. But Jesus has fought against and won the battle against the enemies, all the enemies to the promises of God, so that now all of the promises of God are yes and so be it in Jesus Christ. He has made every single promise of the word of God available to us. 
accessible to us, claimable. I made that word up, but let's use it. Assured, guaranteed, and we can live in these promises today. Now, there's a misconception about God. Of late, he has been called the cosmic child abuser for sending his son Jesus to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. Uh, One week, as I was walking out the back door, this woman approached me and she said, I didn't want God to send his son to die for me. How dare he send his son? How dare he do that to Jesus? What she failed to understand is that Jesus is a warrior. He is the prince, the son of God, the agency of God. As Jonathan fought the battles of Saul and Saul blew the trumpet. So Jesus is the warrior for God. Jesus came forward and said, God, let me win the world back to you. Let me go and fight for you. I was reading this morning in John 17 about the love of the father for the son and the love of the son for the father, that the father is always seeking to bless and glorify the son. And the son is always seeking to glorify and bless the father. And it was the father's deepest desire to save the world. And it was the son's desire to go and fight the enemy that he might ransom the world and give it as a gift back to his father. Titus fought against Jerusalem for his father Vespasian, who was the emperor of Rome. And so it was that the son, Alexander the Great, was the son of um, his father, whatever his name was. It's eluding me. If it was 222 in the morning, I could tell you. But he fought for his father and then took over the, the, the armies of Greece. So Jesus is the champion. In Acts 3.15, Acts 5.31, Hebrews 2.10, Hebrews 12.2, there is this Greek word and it's translated prince, captain, author. But the word is archegos. And it's a Greek word and it means champion or hero. It's the very word that was used in describing Hercules, the mythological champion of the Greek gods. So Jesus is the champion, the archegos, the one that none can stand before. He's the hero. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the victor. In Joshua 5.14, remember the commander of the Lord's army stands before Joshua and says, I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. This is a title that was used of, of Jesus. In fact, often we hear the term the Lord of hosts, also translated the captain of the Lord's army, used in reference to the Lord. And it's used 1,273 times in the Bible. This phrase, the Lord of hosts or the captain of heaven's armies. You see, Jesus is the captain of the Lord's armies. That's why he could say, I could call right now 
and 120,000 legions of angels would come and deliver me. My son Char the other day was saying, Mom, do you understand what happened the night Jesus was born? When all of heaven was filled with the angelic host? And I said, um, maybe. And he said, Mom, they were saying, that's our captain. That's the captain. That's, that's the one that leads us into battle. That's the one we follow in that manger. That's our captain. And they were announcing it to shepherds. We fail to see that Jesus is a warrior that has taken on our greatest enemies. And he took them on in the fragility of his flesh and still defeated them, still absolutely conquered them and had a great victory over death by rising from the dead. He conquered principalities and powers on the cross. Jesus is the victor. He said of Satan, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing on me. He can't hold me. He can't thwart me. He can't stop me. He can't hinder me. He can't touch me. He has nothing on me. What does this mean to you? It means that Jesus has already fought your greatest enemies and all the promises of God are available to you. It means that God continues to fight the battle for you, that you might come and realize every single promise, that it might be realized in your life, that you might live in the promises of God. It's time to realize that the Lord is more committed to getting you into the promises than you are about being in the promises of God. He has fought and he continues to fight for us. Joshua 10. We see that the kings of the south make an alliance together. It begins with Adonai Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem. And he hears that the Gibeonites have made a treaty with Israel. He is intimidated. Why? Because Gibeon is one of the royal kingdoms, one of the strongest kingdoms. And all the men of Gibeah are warriors. This is an incredible thought. To think that this warrior kingdom, one of the strongest kingdoms in Israel, says, you know what? We might be strong, but we're not strong enough to fight against God. This is the kingdom that decided to deceive and to make an alliance with Israel. Because they feared the Lord, they realized that as strong as they were, there was no weapon against the power of God. So he hears that the Gibeonites have made a treaty with Israel. So he invites the most powerful kings of the south into a federation with him to kill the Gibeonites so that they cannot fight for Israel. This same king had heard about what Joshua and Israel had done to the fortified kingdom of Jericho and how thoroughly they had defeated Ai. So he invites the king Hoham of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. And they agree and combine all their forces together and make an encampment against Gibeon. Gibeon sees this alignment of kings and the encampment right outside their gate, and they send a message to Israel 
And they remind Joshua of the commitment and covenant that he has made with them. And they say, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered against us. Verse 6 of Joshua 10. Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites not only included that Israel would spare them, but also that Israel would preserve them, which meant that Israel would fight to defend them. This must have been agonizing for Joshua. I mean, he knew that it was a mistake to make that covenant without consulting the Lord. He knew that he was deceived. And when he came to the city of Gibeon and realized that it was only three days journey from where Gilgal was and realized that that land could not be claimed and recognized the deception, that was bad enough. He was in league with these people forever and ever and ever because he had made a covenant. But now he realizes more than that, he's committed to using the forces of Israel. The men of Israel must all sacrifice, put their lives on the line for Gibeon. This, it's more than he bargained for. He thought he had made a mistake. Now he realizes, wow, this is a big mistake. This, is, this could potentially cost me everything I have. Joshua must have had some trepidations. Remember, they had first been defeated at AI, and it had been horrific. And now he's going up because of his mistake to fight for Gibeon. I, wondered if, I wonder if he had thoughts, doubts about victory. Because this is a great army, greater forces and power than Israel had faced thus far. Again, and they were not fighting for themselves, but for those that they were deceived by and covenanted with. But Joshua and Israel are committed. A covenant is a covenant is a covenant. And he and all the men of war and the mighty men of valor leave immediately and they ascend all night. They have to climb. They have to go up. But on the way, God assures them of victory. Here is the promise. Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Verse 8. Israel seems to have the disadvantage. Joshua comes upon them suddenly, but his troops have marched all night. They're tired. It's unknown terrain. It's, it's a, they've been going uphill, not just going forward and marching, but uphill. It's an unknown enemy. They're fighting for those who deceive them into a treaty. And these are not good odds. But God fights for Israel. According to verse 10, God routes the enemy before Israel. This is the word hamam. H-A-M-A-M, hamam. And it means, in Hebrew, to discomfit, to move noisily against, to vex, to trouble, to confuse, to destroy, to move. All that in this word, hamam. And that's what God begins to do to the enemy 
to the five kings, to these strong powers, God begins to hamam. Don't you love that word, just hamam? My mom took a Hebrew class, and the next thing you know, she started incorporating Hebrew in all her prayers. And then afterwards, she'd be like, what? Don't you know Hebrew? And it was so powerful when she'd say, Lord, mom, the enemy. And we'd be like, yeah, whatever that is, do it. Sounds good. Mom's in the spirit. Just go for it. But mom, maybe we could just do it and just pretend that we know Hebrew. I don't know if I've told you this before, but Brian dating Chuck Smith's daughter thought that I probably knew Hebrew and spoke Greek in my sleep. And he said to me, do you, do you speak Hebrew? I said, he's like, that's great. What's that mean? Oh, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He's like, wow. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and, then I, and then I said, Havenu shalom, shalom, shalom. Havenu shalom lecham. And I just said, it's songs. I know all these Hebrew songs. I do not know Hebrew. (laughs) So he wasn't as impressed as he thought. You know, Chuck and Kay were in the spirit, but they gave birth to sinners. (laughs) Then we're told that God joined the battle and killed the enemy as they were on the descent. So Israel had had to make this ascension, which was not easy. Now the enemy thinks, oh, we get to go downhill. We can get away. We can run so fast. That's when the enemy's got the advantage on the descent. But God joins the battle and begins to kill them on the descent. And the verse 11, the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven. Imagine the size of these hailstones that they're taking these mighty men and these soldiers out. I I wonder if it was actually the angels having a hail fight, you know, like a snowball fight. Like, oh, I beamed that one. What are you doing? I'm just curious. But none of the Israelites were hit. How good a name is that? The Israelites are among them, but they're not being hit by these hailstones. More died from the hailstones than from the sword of Israel. Then in verses 12 through 14, God holds back the day and the night. He keeps the sun in place that Israel might thoroughly defeat the enemy. Joshua knows that if night falls, the enemy will escape in the dark and they will go back to their cities. They will reconfigure, reinforce, and they will have to fight this enemy again. So he prays, sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. I'm not a scientist, so I don't have their objections. But scientists are only men who test theories and hypotheses to ascertain what is the normal or usual course of life. You know, we have glorified science to a level that it does not deserve. Now, there are some things scientists are only discovering what God already made. And they're working with laws that God put in place, the laws of the body. God made the body. And what happens with science? They figure out how the body works. If they try to go against those laws of how the body works, they'll fail. 
they are working with what God has done. Galileo, they asked Galileo, who is um, the father of physics. They said, how are you doing all this? And he says, I am only thinking the thoughts of God after him. God made the laws of physics and men are only learning those laws and observing those laws and trying to work within those laws. And they, they know that. They know that when it comes, they are observing and trying to catch on. But I know this. I know that the Bible said it, so it's true. Years ago, there was a, um, a, a pastor, a black pastor. He'd been a slave. He was emancipated. He was in the South. And his, his message that he always preached was, the sun do move. That's how he said it, the sun do move. And he was ridiculed. He was called backward because he preached that the sun do move. And he says, look, the Bible says that the sun comes out of its chambers like a bridegroom at his wedding. That means the sun do move. It took 50 years for science to catch up with that pastor and realize that the sun do move, just as the Bible says. There was a book I read years ago. It's actually more of a pamphlet by a man named Ralph Muncaster. And in it, he has all these discoveries of science, like the life is in the blood. And then he has all the scriptures of when the Bible said it and when science discovered it, like paths in the ocean, the ocean currents. Um, another one is the, um, the atmosphere. And it says in, I believe it's either Amos or Joel, that God has set his layers in the sky. All these things the Bible said. And science is, for most of it, has just discovered it since the 1800s. But all of these things were lost to men. But when the Bible says that God held back the sun, you know what? God held back the sun. He made it. It's his creation. He can do with his creation what he wants to do with his creation. He could do whatever he wants. Just like it's my house and I can move the furniture wherever I want. At any time I want to with help from Brian. I can do this. So God can do it. It is a miracle. And God invoked his great power to help Israel. He didn't just help them in part, but he even brought in nature. He held the sun back for them. He stopped the sun and the moon in their course so that they might have light and thoroughly defeat the enemy that they might have the promised land. Oh, how many times has God miraculously held back the night for you? How many times did it seem like the night, the darkness was encroaching in and there was no hope, no light, no way out of that circumstance? But God held back the night. I can think of countless times in my own life when God has held back the night and kept the light shining. When I was only 16 years old, I had the opportunity to go to Sweden with my mom and dad. And my dad did a conference, a Christian conference in a place called Mamsurping. 
I just have to say it fast because I'm not real sure about the pronunciation. That place. And um, it was during midsummer. So what happened is the sun went down for 10 minutes and came right back up. So it never got dark. And I remember my dad woke me up at 12 and said, baby, you gotta see this. You gotta see this. And so we went outside and we stood in this field and we watched the sun set. And then we watched the sun rise. And it was absolutely amazing. But God held the sun at bay for the sake of Israel, that they might inherit the promises. Do you realize? I mean, God went all out for Israel, that they might have the promises. In fact, it says in verse 14, and there has been no day like that before or after, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Some say that Joshua was strategic in his conquest of Canaan, that he divided, you know, Israel into the south and the north. But this battle was unexpected. He didn't know this was going to happen, that five kings were going to join together and he was going to be able to thoroughly defeat the south. Joshua didn't know the land that well. He had only spied it out for 40 days And that had been 40 years previously. How many of you remember what happened 40 years ago? Some of you are going, are you kidding? I wasn't even born. I would have been like minus 25. And then some of us would have been 17 or 18 years old. And I remember very little of that time. God was strategic. And Joshua was obedient to the plan of God. You know, I had, I remember more people coming to Calvary, trying to figure out my dad's strategy. And people would say, you know, Chuck is really wise and he's really doing this and he's doing that. Well, if you knew Chuck, you'd realize that Chuck was not strategic. He was obedient. And he said this one time, here at Calvary Chapel, I'll never forget when he said this, we just sought to find out where the river of the Holy Spirit was flowing and to get in the boat and flow with it. That was his strategy. I promise you, I knew the man. That was his strategy. My dad never planned anything. He didn't even plan vacations. You just show up and you see what happens. I know, used to scare me to death because I'm a planner like my mother. And my dad would be like, let's just see what happens. We went to France. I remember on that same trip to Sweden, we ended up in France. And my parents said, let's ride the metro. And I'm like, no, let's not do that. That's not a good idea. We don't speak French. I'm 16, like trying to boss my parents around. Don't do it. Please don't do it. And they're like, come on, baby. And the next thing I knew, we were riding the metro. My mom and dad are trying to figure out French. And they're like, let's just get out here. This sounds like a great spot, you know. And so we got out and we came up at the, at the Sin River. And then my dad's like, oh, let's take a boat ride. Let's see if we get it. I'm like, no, no, it's a river of sin. You don't want to take a boat ride. But they did. And I was with them the entire time. He never planned anything. I promise you, he was not a planner. Other people here at Calvary said, Chuck, don't you think we had to plan an Easter service? Well, I guess so. You know, that's how it went. It, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that he was irresponsible because he wasn't. He just knew that God would show up. 
He just knew that the Lord would work, that Jesus was strategic. And he just needed to hear Jesus. And he focused on hearing the voice of the Lord, not on planning. And then everyone would come to cover like, what's the secret? We know the word of God, but maybe it's the way the inflections of his voice. He never yells at people. He never yelled at me. And I gave him cause, but he never did. You know, and, and they tried to make it, it's this or it's that. And, and so people would go and imitate him. And it, it, they wouldn't have the same effect. I'll, I'll never forget my dad saying, you know, he mentioned this pastor on the radio. He's doing not only my sermons, but he's telling my story. I've heard him tell five of my stories. And I know those are my stories because I was three and then I was five and then I was seven. That guy's too young to have gone through that. You know, it didn't work for them. Joshua was not strategic. He was obedient. And there's a difference. We don't have to be strategic. It's not about having the best plan. It's about having the best God. And it's about listening to this great God that we have. The five federated kings fled the battle and they hid in a cave at Makedah. Listen to this. These kings left their forces, left their armies and sought to save themselves. Joshua is informed and he commands the men to seal off the cave with a stone, trapping the kings inside, place a small guard. But then he tells them, do not be distracted. Keep pursuing the enemy. Verse 19, and do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear ranks. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Joshua recognized the danger of thinking the battle was over too soon. Just because these kings were caught and trapped, it was not the time to rest on their laurels. If the enemy regrouped, they could wage war and a dangerous counterattack again. In 2 Kings chapter 13, Elisha meets with the king of Israel. And he has the king shoot an arrow out the window. And the king takes the bow and he shoots the arrow out. And he says, thus you will defeat the army of Syria. Then he says, now take your arrows and pound them on the ground. And the king just does this anemic pounding. Like, like, I don't get it. And Elisha begins to weep. And he says, why did you only do it three times? If only you had found those arrows on the ground, you, you could win the battle. You could thoroughly wipe out the enemy. But now you will only win three battles against the enemy. Brian and I have taken that as a slogan for our life, that in prayer we pound the ground. That's why First Thessalonians, Paul tells us, pray without ceasing. When is the time to stop praying about a certain situation? When you have the thorough victory and are settled in the land. Only then you pray without cessation. Those of you with children, you know this. You think you only have to pray for them until they get married. And then you realize, oh no, now it's worse. Now you need bigger, stronger prayers. You never stop praying from children from conception until you die. Happy thoughts. You pray for those kids. 
you pray without ceasing for those children. There's never a time that they don't need your prayers. We don't want to be anemic in our prayers. We don't want to stop at the cave of the enemy and just rest and say, well, this is good enough. No, it's not good enough until the enemy is thoroughly defeated. At the end of the battle, when the enemy forces were completely consumed, Joshua had all the forces reconfigure at the camp, and they realized that there were no losses in Israel. Every soldier returned from battle alive. They gained the respect of all in Canaan. Verse 20, nobody would criticize Joshua, none of the enemy. They returned to the cave. They brought out the kings. And Joshua had the men put their feet on the necks of the kings. Many ancient pictures and battle reliefs contain such scenes. It was a sign of dominance. Even the men of Israel were more powerful than the kings of this world. And that's something God wants you to know. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First John 4, 4. Joshua's pronouncement, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. You'll put your foot on the neck of all your enemies. The secret to victory is not perfection. It's not strength. It's not strategy. It's not the enemy's weaknesses. But the secret to victory was the presence of the Lord, the promise of the Lord, his involvement and his favor. As they sought the Lord, their enemies would be defeated, no matter how strong the force against them no matter how big the alignment. And this is what Joshua is showing the soldiers as their feet are on the necks of the kings. Joshua then has the kings hung and displays their dead bodies. And it's another boost to the faith of Israel. And he buries them in the cave under a heap of stones. Another testimony, memorial, story to tell the next generation Boys love stories like this. We as girls are like, <laughs> you know, my brothers used to love to watch combat when they were growing up. I hated combat. I hate guns. I hate all that kind of stuff. But you know, God knows how to capture a boy's heart, doesn't he? And later, as these fathers in Israel, they would be like, we're going on a man trip. And they could go and see all these places where these battles had been. And the fathers could recall and retell the stories to their sons, that their sons might know that God is greater and God fights for them. So there's a memorial. But Joshua has a thorough victory. He does not leave the enemy any power, place, or people to return to. If he did not completely destroy these cities, others would rise up, and fight against Israel. And those forces would be a thorn in the sight of Israel. He is clearing the way for the tribes of Israel to simply move in and settle into the promised land. There would be no more great enemies to contend with, just little skirmishes ahead. So Joshua goes to each of the kingdoms and destroys it, beginning with Libna and Lachish. And while he's fighting against Lachish, Gezer, that old Gezer, comes to help against Lachish, and they're defeated. 
Eglon, Hebron, Debir. All these kings in their land Joshua took one at a time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Verse 42, this was a secret to success. God fought for Israel. Now, here's the lesson. This same God, this same God, he has fought for us that he might bring us into all of his promises. But we must go forward in faith, receiving the confirmation of God's word and promises. We must fight the enemy because God fights with us. He fights for us. There's this story told in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis that I love. And it's about this man, and he's got this awful reptile on his shoulder. And the reptile bites him and whispers blasphemies in his ear all long, all um, day and night long and won't let him sleep and is painful. And the angel, an angel comes to this man and says, take that beast off your shoulder. And he says, I can't. If I go to do it, he'll just claw me and the pain will be so severe. But I just hate what he's doing to me and it hurts so bad. And he says, will you take it off of me? Will you just take it off of me? I can't do it for myself. And the angel says to this man, I can't take it off. You must choose to get that beast off your shoulder, no matter what the sacrifice. And then the man decides that he can't live with this beast blaspheming and doing all this, and it's keeping him from all the promises of God. So he takes his hand and he begins to pull this reptile off his shoulder. And the reptile begins to dig its claws in and bite him as he's doing it. And suddenly the angel's hand comes and clasps his hand. And together they throw the beast down to the ground. And the reptile begins to writhe and roll. And all of a sudden it turns into this great white horse And the angel helps the man to mount it and ride into heaven. And you get the analogy, right? That very thing that is biting us and blaspheming, God says, you take the first step and I will be with you to deliver you and to give you the victory and you will ride on it. You will have total victory over it and it will become your testimony of victory. It's a great part in that book. And I sense we have one happy clapper in the audience. (laughs) Maybe three. Four. No matter how strong the force against them, no matter how big the alignment, no matter how great the weapons, God is for you. We must go forward in faith, receive the confirmation of God's word and promises. God has a word for the battle that you're in for the place that you're at. And you must fight because God is fighting for you. And we must not stop, rest, or sit at the cave of kings as long as we're on this earth. But we must continue to pursue our enemy and keep our enemy fleeing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We want the devil on retreat not our retreats. We want the devil being pursued and leaving us. 
and we must continue to pursue the enemy until they are completely dealt with. We must finish the battle. There is a need to go into the strongholds, the places that the enemy was born, raised, trained, and equipped. The strongholds of sin. When somebody stops sinning, pray that the strongholds of sin in their life are absolutely broken so there's nothing to return to. We must go into the strongholds of condemnation and expose the lies so that no one listens to those lies again. We need complete victory, not just in battle, but in the strongholds so that nothing remains that can keep us, intimidate us, thwart us, hinder us from the promises of God to us. God has won the great battle. He has fought for us that he might fight for us. He wants you to hear, believe, and move forward in and receive the fulfillment of every promise that he has given you through his word. And believe it or not, God cares more about fulfilling his word to you than you care about having it fulfilled to you. He is zealous. He is passionate about fulfilling his word and his promises. The key to receiving and living in it is not your perfect record. God can economize and use even your mistakes if you give them fully to him. Lord, here's my mistakes. Here's my problems. Here's all the things that I've done wrong. Use it for your glory. God can use all things and anything for his glory. Your personal strength, strategy, or even the people you fight for or with will not, are not the assurance of victory. The key to victory is being in the presence, the promise, and favor of the God that loves you so much. He came to earth and fought sin, death, and the powers of hell that you might have all the promises that belong to him. And he continues to fight the forces that oppose you. He is committed to getting you into all that he has promised. Isaiah forty nine twenty five. God says, For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. Isaiah 54, 17 tells us that the heritage of the Lord is, is victory over the enemy. These are the promises of God to us. Our God is a warrior. He is the captain of the Lord's army. And he fights for us. He has fought for us and has won the great battle. And now he fights for us every day that we might enter in, receive, and live in all of his promises and see them fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have promised us your promises. Lord, that when we are hurting, when we face the enemy, we can look to your word and we can find the promise that fits, the promise that is for us, the promise that we can appropriate, that we can live by. Lord, we thank you that you honor your promises. Lord, just even as Joshua honored the covenant with 
the Gibeonites. So you honor your covenant with us where you have promised to fight for us and to fight to bring us into all of your promises. God, may we live as women who receive and believe and fight for the promises of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.